God has a way of having us in the right place at the right time. And so I think it's no accident, and you'll see why it's no accident as we read, that we come to this passage um, now after the events that have been going on in our world in the last week, particularly the events in Japan. I think that will make sense as we read on. Luke 21, 5. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives." But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet, and all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. 
Father, we come to you now, and it's not early in the morning, and yet we want to come to you to listen to your Son. So we pray, God, that you would give us the eagerness that the people had in those days to hear what he has to say. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe and to obey and to receive what you say to us tonight. And give us wills to put into practice the things that we ought to do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a classically difficult passage to interpret. Perhaps you realize that fact as we read it through. These 24 verses with all of their prophecies are a challenge to anyone who's trying to look at them carefully. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that we can't interpret them, uh, nor does it mean that we cannot, with careful observations, come to some very clear and straightforward understanding of what Jesus has in mind here. But the difficult nature of this passage does mean that we can't understand it if we give it merely a cursory and superficial reading. In other words, if all we did was read it tonight, or if all you did in your quiet time when you come to this passage is read it, you won't get it probably the first time. You have to think. You have to work a little bit. And so tonight we're going to have to work a little bit to get to the bottom of Luke 21. These prophecies cannot be explained with an oversimple, lickety-split kind of interpretation. And yet, that's often what we give, what people give to Luke 21 and to its parallels in Mark 13 and Matthew 24. Those three chapters are all recording these same words of Jesus. And many people read these passages and carelessly rush to the assumption that these passages are all about the end times and that everything Jesus has to say here has to do with the last days and the great tribulation and the second coming and so on. And so we read it and we think, oh, well, we do understand it. But if you go in with that simplistic assumption and then you actually begin carefully reading what Jesus says here, you'll find yourself all tied in knots. Because this passage, while it's definitely understandable, is not as simplistic as sometimes we may assume that it is. There's more to it than perhaps we may have previously assumed. And so tonight, before I really preach this passage this evening, I need to teach it first. Before I can give you the application to your lives, I need to spend an unusual amount of time giving you an explanation of really what's here. I need to give you the lay of the land, as it were, tonight. I need to map out for you exactly what Jesus is saying and how his timeline works and so on. And so that's what I want to do for probably uh, two-thirds of our time tonight, is simply to show you what's here before I say anything really to you about what needs to be here and what needs to be done out there because of what's here in the passage. So let me try and, and sort of map out Jesus' prophecies here by making three assertions about Luke 21. The first is that this passage is not simply about the second coming. Luke 21 is not simply about the second coming. In spite of how you may have read it in times past, in spite of how I grew up understanding this passage, in spite of how you may have heard it preached, this is not a passage simply about the end times. And I want to try to demonstrate that to you, that many of the prophecies here in Luke 21 were fulfilled within about 40 years of Jesus preaching this sermon. That much of this passage is a prophecy not about the last days, but about the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD. So let me tell you why I say that I believe much of this passage is about 70 AD and not about the end times. Notice 
first of all, the question that Jesus is answering in this passage. You'll remember in verse 5 that his disciples were admiring the architecture and decor of the temple. And then in verse 6, Jesus startled them by saying that the whole thing actually was going to be torn down and overrun. And then in verse 7 comes their follow-up question. And that opens up the rest of the discussion. Here's the question that Jesus is answering. Verse 7, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, did you hear that? What are the these things that they're asking about there? Well, they're not in Luke 21 asking about when Jesus will return or what the signs of his coming will be. They're asking about the destruction of the temple, which he's just prophesied in verse 6. And so it stands to reason that the question that Jesus is answering, beginning in verses 8 and 9, is the question that they're asking. When is the temple going to be knocked over and destroyed? And then speaking of verses 8 and 9, notice what Jesus begins to say. He begins to answer his disciples' question by mentioning some signs of the soon approaching desolation of the temple. And embedded in those signs that he gives here is a very clear statement that the destruction of the temple is not synonymous with the second coming of Jesus. I want you to see that. Let me say it again. Jesus makes it plain in verses 8 and 9 that the destruction of the temple is not synonymous with his second coming with the end of the world. He tells his disciples, in fact, that they should be wary, verse 8, of anyone claiming that Christ has already come or that the time is near. And he also informs them, verse 9, that when wars are afoot, they should not assume that those wars signify the end. Rather, he says, the end does not follow immediately. And all of this fits hand in glove with what we know about 70 A.D. The temple and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed, just as Jesus prophesied in verse 6. And they were destroyed, verse 9, as a part of wars and disturbances between the Romans and the Jews. And yet this wasn't the end. Life went on. The church went on. Jesus didn't return. The end, verse 9, did not follow immediately. And so what Jesus seems to have been saying in these first few verses was that war was going to come and the temple itself was going to be completely ransacked, but that these things wouldn't be the end yet. So at the very least, we can tell that verses 5 through 9 are not prophecies about the end times. They are rather about the events that took place in 70 A.D., which many of Jesus' original hearers would have lived to see and experience. And then I would argue that verses 10 through 24 are predictive of that same time period, A.D. 70. Because you'll notice in those verses all the very specific references to Jewish life and geography. Notice in verse 12 that Jesus says his disciples will be dragged before synagogues. And then in verses 20 through 21, the locations of the troubles are in Jerusalem and Judea. And then again in verse 24, it's Jerusalem that would be destroyed, just as Jesus already alluded to in verse 6. And yet we know from the rest of the scripture that the great final end-time tribulation will not merely be a Jerusalem-Judea-Jewish phenomenon, will it? It will not be confined to the region of Palestine. The great final days of distress are going to come, the Bible says, on the whole earth. But here in this middle portion of Luke 21, Jesus is not talking about the whole earth primarily. He's talking about Jerusalem and Judea. And so I conclude that this portion of the prophecies as well, with its very Jewish applications about fleeing Jerusalem and being dragged before synagogues and so on, this portion is also in reference to what has already happened, what did happen in 70 A.D. 
Jesus was warning his disciples that in about 40 years they were going to be living through some very difficult days for the Jewish people and that in those days things would be particularly hard for Jewish people who were also followers of Christ. So that's the first thing that needs saying as we try to understand Jesus' prophecies in Luke 21. This passage is not simply about the second coming. Much of it, it seems to me, has already come to fulfillment. And yet the second thing that we have to say is that this passage is indeed about the second coming. It's not merely about the second coming, but it is about the second coming. Now, yes, a great many of the prophecies, as I said here in this chapter, have already been fulfilled, but not all of them. Not all of them. And I want to argue that beginning in verse 25, the focus of Jesus' attention shifts to the last days and to his second coming. And he begins to make prophecies that have not been fulfilled yet. But beginning again in verse 25, prophecies that haven't been fulfilled but that will be as we approach nearer and nearer Christ's return. And once again, let me give you a few reasons why I believe that. A few reasons why I believe that starting in verse 25, Jesus skips ahead in the timeline significantly. First, notice the end of verse 24. At the end of verse 24, Jesus seems to introduce a new era of history. He calls it the times of the Gentiles. Now, Christians are at variance about what that phrase means. Most likely, it seems to me that this times of the Gentiles refers to that period of history when the Jewish people would be largely scattered outside of the nation, the the land of Israel, that time when Jerusalem itself would no longer be the place where the one true God was worshipped as he ought to be, and that time when the followers of Christ would come almost in wholesale fashion from among the Gentile nations and peoples and not from among the Jews. I think that's what Jesus means when he refers to the times of the Gentiles at the end of verse 24. There was a time coming when Gentiles, not Jews, would both rule Jerusalem and would make up the vast majority of God's people. But whatever the phrase the times of the Gentiles means exactly, it's clear that Jesus is marking it off in verse 24 as a new epoch in history, as a new period of time that would be ushered in after the destruction of the temple. The temple is going to be destroyed and Jerusalem is going to be trampled underfoot until this time period, this times of the Gentiles, is fulfilled. And what that means is at the end of verse 24, Jesus has finished talking about Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, and he's moved into a different era in his thinking, sometime out in the future. And because he has ceased thinking about Jerusalem and the temple, and he's moved ahead into a new era, it would not be surprising if what follows, beginning in verse 25, was no longer a discussion about 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem, but a discussion about the events that would take place in that new era, the times of the Gentiles. And I believe the evidence in verses 25 and following demonstrates that that's exactly what Jesus begins to do. He stops talking about Jerusalem and about 70 AD, and he begins looking much further down the road. In fact, you'll notice that after verse 24, there's no more mention of Jerusalem or Judea at all. In fact, Jesus now begins to talk about a time of difficulty, verse 35, that will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth you see that he says in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, and so on. So he's no longer talking about the geographic region where he lives. He's talking about something much broader, much 
bigger. And that, it seems to me, matches up quite well with what the rest of the Bible says about the last days. The difficult times that will come in the last days, the great final tribulation and judgment of the world, unlike what we were reading in verses 12 through 24, will not merely be an Israeli phenomenon, but a worldwide one. And that's what Jesus is now speaking about as he begins in verse 25. He has broadened the scope. He is looking ahead into the future. Add to that the fact that he says plainly in verse 27 that at this time that he's speaking of, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. And I think you'll agree that Jesus can no longer be referring to the destruction of the temple at the hands of Titus and his Roman legions. He's speaking about his second coming. So, There are, it seems to me, two things going on in this passage. Up through verse 24, Jesus is answering the disciples' original question about the destruction of the temple, an event which we know took place in 70 AD. But then at the end of verse 24, and then going on through the rest of his discourse, he begins to look ahead to a day when the distress of 70 AD will seem like a small thing, to a day when the distress will be on a worldwide scale, to a time of reckoning that will come, verse 35, upon all those who dwell on all the face of the earth. So I think that's how the passage lays out. It's not simply about the second coming, but it is about the second coming once we get to the end of verse 24. I told you there were three assertions I want to make, and here's the third one. Namely that there is a great dilemma in verse 32. Verse 32 is a problem. And when you read that verse, again, I think it will become obvious to you. Perhaps you notice the problem already. The dilemma is that Jesus says there, and remember, this is after he has begun talking about his second coming. Jesus says in verse 32, This generation will not pass away until all things take place. In other words, everything that he's been prophesying in this passage will come to pass, he says, before the generation that was standing before him had passed away from the face of the earth. And when we just read that straight off, it's a problem, isn't it? How can it be that all these things, especially the Son of Man coming in the clouds, could take place before that generation that was before him had perished from the earth? Well, there are at least three ways that we can interpret that. One would be to read verse 32 as a few earnest Bible readers have done through the ages, and to assume that this passage must be saying that Jesus has come the second time already and that we are living in the period after his return but before the end of the world. Now that view may be foreign to you, but let me say again, there are a few people who in an attempt to be faithful to the word of God and especially like passages like this one have come to that conclusion. Jesus is coming, verse 27, but he says that All these things are going to take place before this generation passes away. So he must have come. And we're living in the time period after that. Some people believe that. I don't believe that's the correct view. Mainly because the word of God gives us far too many clues that the second coming is yet future. We're told, for instance, that when Jesus comes again, every eye will see him. Revelation 1-7. And that doesn't seem to have happened yet. We're also told here in Luke 21 that a great worldwide distress tribulation will be connected with his second coming and that doesn't seem to have occurred yet either and we could go on with the list of reasons to believe that Jesus has not come yet so I set aside as a possibility for how to deal 
with the dilemma in verse 32, the idea that the second coming has already taken place. But when I set that idea aside, the dilemma in verse 32 only gets bigger. Because if Jesus says he's coming in verse 27, and if all these things, including his coming, will take place in the lifespan of this generation with whom Jesus is dealing in this passage, and if we know that the people of that day are dead, and Jesus still hasn't come, what gives? How can both verse 27 and verse 32 be true if Peter and his companions are dead and Jesus has not yet come? Well, a second possibility is to say that Jesus was not actually talking about his second coming in verse 27. The second possibility is to argue that when Jesus says, you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, that was actually a reference to something other than his bodily return to the earth. Perhaps it could refer to his coming in judgment in the events of 70 AD. Perhaps verse 27 could refer to his coming in the power of the gospel as it's preached. But you could read this and say, well, the solution is that verse 27 is not really about the second coming. It's about something that's already happened, but not the second coming. But the problem is that neither Jesus' judgment in 70 AD nor the advance of his gospel ever since can be described as coming in a cloud, can it? On the contrary, Acts 1.11 tells us that Jesus left the world bodily and went to heaven in a cloud and that at his second coming, he will return in the same way he left, in a cloud. So this coming in a cloud is certainly about the second coming and therefore we have to set aside this second possible solution to the problem in verse 32. This passage has to be about Jesus' return. And yet if that's so, how can it be that this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Let me finally tell you what I think the solution is. The solution to the dilemma in verse 32 comes when we realize that the New Testament often uses the word generation in a way different from the way that we normally use it. We think of generations mainly in terms of time periods and family trees, right? So for us, a generation represents a certain group of people who are all roughly the same age. Whether it's in a family or in a school or in a church, we have these generations. Baby boomers, Generation X, Generation Y, whatever the new one is, and so on. That's how we think of generations. And if we use that definition in Luke 21:32, the verse and the passage becomes very difficult to understand. Because if the word generation is used in the way that we are accustomed to using it, then what Jesus certainly meant was that the second coming and the end of the world would have to have taken place within 30 30 or 40 years of this prophecy. It would have had to have taken place before Peter and James and John and their contemporaries died out. The end would have had to come very, very quickly. But it should be pointed out that Jesus and the New Testament writers often use the word generation in a very different way. That is to say that on the lips of Jesus and the apostles, the word generation often means something quite different than a group of people who are all born roughly around the same time period. To be more exact, the way Jesus and the apostles often use the word generation might be more akin to our use of the word culture. Culture. For instance, in Matthew 12, 39, Jesus said that an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And when you read that passage, it's clear that this craving for a sign wasn't confined to when people were born or where they fit in on their family trees. The 
the evil and adulterous generation wasn't about how old people were, but it was a cultural attitude that said we simply will not believe the truth. There were people of all ages in Jerusalem who were demanding signs and who wouldn't believe. So the wicked and adulterous generation was not an age set, but it was an attitude of a culture. The same thing in Acts 2.40. We find Peter there exhorting the crowds at Pentecost as he's preaching Christ to them. And one of the things he says is, be saved from this perverse generation. And clearly, Peter is not urging people to be saved from their age group, right? There's nothing wrong with your age. There's nothing sinful about how old you are or how young you are. There's nothing inherently sinful about when you were born or how many people are in your age group. Peter's not asking them to be saved from being baby boomers or generation Xers or whatever it may be. He's urging them to be saved from the sinful culture, the sinful generation around them in whatever age group it may show itself. And so my point is that in the New Testament, the word generation often refers not to a particular age group or time period, but to a cultural ethos, to a particular way of life and thinking. Therefore, when Jesus says that the generation before him will not have perished before the second coming and the end of the world occur, I take it that he's using the word generation in just the way I've been describing. He's not saying that the people who are roughly his age and the age of his disciples would necessarily still be alive at the end of the world. He is saying, rather, that the kind of culture which he was living in would still exist at the second coming. Some people think he was talking about Jewish culture. Some people think he's talking about sinful, unbelieving, wicked, and adulterous culture. But in either case, both of those cultures are still around, aren't they? The culture that Jesus lived in, he says, will still be around when he comes again. So his coming is not so far off, in other words, that people and cultures will be fundamentally different than they were in the first century. The world, he's saying, will continue on much in the same way that it has forever. And in that sense, his coming has always been near. He's going to come to a generation of people, a culture just like ours. And therefore, we never know when that may be. And therefore, it's always near. So let me summarize what I think is going on in the chapter. In verses 5 through 24, Jesus prophesies the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 AD under the generalship of Titus, the Roman. Then starting with the final clause in verse 24, and really then in verse 25, Jesus looks ahead through the times of the Gentiles, all the way to the end of the times of the Gentiles, all the way to the last days, the days of his second coming, the days of the great and final tribulation and destruction of all the earth, verse 35. And as a part of those end time prophecies, he declares that the very same kind of culture that existed in the first century, whether it's Jewish culture or sinful culture or both, or both, that sinful culture or that Jewish culture will continue to exist all the way down through the ages until all things are accomplished. That's what Luke 21, 5 through 38 says in a nutshell, I believe. But now, having spent all that time simply trying to set the scene and to sketch out Jesus' prophetic timeline, the question is, how does all this apply to me? How does all this apply to you? What am I supposed to do? What are you supposed to do with all these prophecies, some of which were fulfilled 1,900 years before we were born? 
So that's where I want to go with the fleeting moments that we have left. I want to give you just some implications and applications. What is the takeaway from this difficult passage? What are we to get from it? What are we to do with it personally and as a church? And I want to spend three or four minutes apiece on four applications, and then we'll be through. So number one, Luke 21 reminds us that the temple in Jerusalem is no longer necessary. Luke 21 reminds us that the temple in Jerusalem is no longer necessary. There was an inherent danger that came along with that marvelous building in Jerusalem, and we see it in verse 5. Because the temple was so historic and great and beautiful and enormous, there was a real temptation for people to idolize the building. Now, when I say that, I don't want to minimize the importance of the temple at all. For centuries, it was the one and only place where sins could be atoned for and where God's presence surely dwelt. And yet, as we know, Jesus came into the world to replace the temple and to replace the previous version of it that was called the tabernacle. That's what we're told in John 1.14. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. And what John is telling us is that Jesus came to be what the temple was, the dwelling place of God. Jesus came to be what the temple had been and represented. It was, he was the meeting place with God now. He is where sin was atoned for, not the temple. He is the high priest who intercedes for us so that we don't need what goes on in the temple. Jesus came to be the new and final temple of God. And so the question going forward in the New Testament was going to be, what would people now think about that temple building? Now that Jesus had come, now that he had come and tabernacled among us, now that the dwelling of God was with man in Jesus' flesh instead of in that building, what would people do with the temple? Would they continue to treat it as they had before? Would they, because the temple was so grand and historic and beautiful, be tempted to hang on to the temple and venerate the temple and in so doing to take some of the spotlight off of the finished work of Christ? That's the question in the New Testament. And the answer, of course, is yes. That's one of the reasons why the book of Hebrews was written, to encourage people, you don't need these things. Christ has come, and he's the fulfillment. And yet people continue to go back. And we see even a hint of that here in verse 5. Here are the disciples walking right next to the Son of God. The tabernacle is going with them wherever they go. And yet, and yet, the enormity and the grandeur of the building was still a distraction to him. And so it would be for many people, including some people today who believe that one of the keys to history is the rebuilding of this building. No. The temple has been completed in Christ. The temple, though through the finished work of Christ, has been rendered obsolete. It's been rendered no longer necessary. And yet, it continued to be a distraction for a great many people. Maybe that's why God allowed it to be destroyed in 70 AD. At any rate, it was destroyed, as Jesus prophesied here in verse 6. And the fact that it was, and here's the point, the fact that it was destroyed and has remained so to this day is a reminder to us that the temple is no longer necessary. We have Christ to tabernacle among us. 
We have Christ as the one and only meeting place with God. We have Christ as the lamb who completed what all those other lambs foreshadowed. We have Christ who has atoned for our sins once for all. We have Christ who is our great high priest so that we don't need the sacrifices and the priests and the temple anymore. And we should rejoice in that. We can meet with God tonight and be certain that he is with us and be certain that our sins are forgiven, though we have never been to Jerusalem and most of us will never go there. Because instead of us having to go to the temple to find forgiveness and friendship with God, the temple has come to us in the person of Jesus. And I just ask you before we go on, if you've embraced him, have you accepted the sacrifice that he has made for your sins? Have you realized that he is the one meeting place between you and God? That if you are to be right with God, it will only be through Jesus? And if you haven't done that, will you do that? Now, the temple has come to you in the person of Christ. God has come to you. Now you need to walk through the door and enter into all the blessings that are found in the temple that is Jesus. So that's the first thing. Luke 21 reminds us that the temple is no longer necessary. Secondly, Luke 21 reminds us that tribulation is normal for God's people. Tribulation is normal for God's people. One of the dangers of just presuming that the entirety of this passage is about the end times is that such an interpretation will inevitably lead you to the assumption that all these warnings about suffering and persecution and tribulation and hanging on and persevering, you will inevitably come to the conclusion, if this is all about the end times, you will inevitably come to the conclusion that all that need for perseverance, all that talk about suffering is all way out in the future somewhere. But I've tried to show you tonight that that's not the case. In fact, what Jesus seems to be saying in this passage is that, first of all, the Christian church was basically born into the shadow of persecution and suffering as tribulation came upon her from her very early existence, verses 12 through 24. And then Jesus is also saying that the Christian church will finish its course in this world with a great flourish of persecution and suffering as well, verses 25 through 36. And it stands to reason if the church was born into suffering, and if the church will finish her days on this earth in suffering, that the middle of her existence will probably be characterized by suffering as well. In fact, doesn't the Bible say that? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The church is a suffering and a marginalized institution by her very nature. And so there will always be difficulty for God's people. In fact, you'll notice that verses 10 and 11 and then verses 25 and 26 seem to be describing events which have been taking place for 2,000 years now. We shouldn't be surprised by earthquakes and famines, verse 11, because they've been going on for 2,000 years and more. We shouldn't be surprised, verse 25, by the roaring of the sea and the waves. These things have been taking place, Jesus seems to indicate, all throughout the times of the Gentiles. These things, he says, are par for the course for all people living on a fallen planet. And though, as we said, verses 12 to 19 seem to speak specifically to the people who were alive during the great Roman persecution of 70 AD, is it not also true that there are Christians enduring much the same kind of terrorizing and interrogation and persecution today? If you read the newsletters of International Christian Concern or the Voice of the Martyrs, you'll find that it's so. 
In fact, I told some of you on Sunday morning about the recent burning of 59 church buildings in Ethiopia near where Anthony is working. So my point is that while we seem to be living in the gap between verses 24 and 27, we seem to be living in the parentheses between the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction that's coming upon all the earth, the situation is still often the same. People in the world will suffer, verses 10 and 11, verses 25 and 26. And God's people, verses 12 through 19, will be particular targets of suffering. And we must, therefore, be wary of any kind of theology, any kind of philosophy that would lead us to believe otherwise. Obviously, we must be aware of teachers that tell us that God always wants his people to be healthy and safe and well-to-do and living their best life now. It's a lie. And we must also beware of last days, timelines, and teachings that would lead us to believe that God's people won't actually have to live through the most difficult seasons of planet Earth. There seems to me to be no biblical support for that view as far as I can tell. Every time the Bible speaks about the end times, it does so, as in verses 34 to 36, to help us to be prepared and to hang on in the midst of the difficulty, not to assure us that we won't have to worry about the difficulty because we'll be out of here before it gets really bad. If we didn't have to worry about it, he wouldn't tell us what to do in the midst of it. No, tribulation is normal for God's people. That's the second thing. We need to be prepared for it. Third, Luke 21 reminds us that the signs of the times are important. The signs of the times are important. Now, yes, it's true that even once the signs in verses 8 and 9 have shown themselves, quote, the end does not follow immediately. And yes, it's also true, as I was just saying, that the signs mentioned in verses 10 and 11 and 25 and 26 have been happening for centuries now. And they are called in Matthew 24 merely the beginnings of birth pangs. And therefore, yes, it's true that we cannot conclude that because of the earthquake and the tsunami in Japan, Jesus is coming back by the end of March. Yes, it's true, in other words, that the various signs mentioned in this chapter do not actually help us pinpoint the second coming and the end of the world. They're all merely the beginnings of birth pangs on planet Earth. But, and here's the point, but it's also true, according to Jesus, that these various events, earthquakes, persecution, famines, plagues, wars, and so on, are indeed signs. They're not, as we sometimes wish to make them, definite points on a crystal clear timeline, but they are reminders that Christ is coming. Isn't that what Jesus said in verse 28? He says, in essence, when you see these things, lift up your head because I'm very close to returning. When you see these things, realize that your redemption is nearer now than it was when you first believed. And so earthquakes and wars and famines are signs. That's the point Jesus is also making when he compares these various signs to leaves in verses 29, and 30, 29, 30, and 31. In other words, every time you see a new leaf sprouting from your trees this spring, it will be a reminder that summer is growing nearer every day. Now, no, those leaves don't guarantee precisely when the first really hot day will come, and the leaves don't guarantee that there won't be any cold snaps in between now and then. But the leaves are a definite reminder that summer is coming, even though we don't know exactly when. And so, Jesus says, are the various signs of the times. So when you see the news of an earthquake and a tsunami in Japan, you oughtn't necessarily to say to yourself, well, here's proof that Jesus is coming any day now. Let's hunker down. History 
if we knew it better than we do, would teach us that there have been more devastating earthquakes than this latest one, even all the way back in the first century, A.D. And so the point of our earthquakes and our wars and our persecutions is not necessarily that they serve as precise pinpoints on a timeline, but simply that they serve as reminders that the Lord is coming, albeit at a time we do not know. And that's the point. The signs of the times don't tell us when Jesus is coming, but they do remind us that Jesus is coming. So every time you see the effects of sin in this world, whether it's natural disaster or disease or war or what have you, you ought to be reminded things won't always be this way. That's the point of the signs, I think, to remind us things won't always be this way. They're not points on the timeline. They're simply reminders Jesus is coming to right all these wrongs. Someday you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And if these things can remind us of that fact, then the signs of the times indeed are important for us to take note of. So we ought to notice the signs. And then fourthly, finally, Luke 21 reminds us that readiness for the times is even more important than recognizing the signs of the times. Being ready for Jesus' coming is even more important than recognizing the signs of Jesus' coming. And I draw this from verses 34 to 36, in which which Jesus urges us to be ready for trouble, to be ready for his return. And I simply point out that everything that precedes verses 34 through 36 is told us with verses 34 through 36 in mind. Jesus says everything that he says from 8 to 33 in order that he might say what he says in 34 to 36. The reason why Jesus goes into detail about the various signs of the times is not so that you might be able to watch CNN or Fox News with a sharper eye for the hints of the apocalypse. No, the point of Luke 21 and all these signs and the point of Revelation as well, incidentally, is not to make us better headline gazers, but to make us better people. It's to help us order our lives like people who really expect that we will very soon meet our maker. Jesus tells of earthquakes and famines and so on, not to make us more interested in the news, but that we might be interested more in the new character traits that God has called us to put on as Christians. So that we wouldn't be drunkards, verse 34. So that more close to home for most of us, we wouldn't be weighted down, verse 34, with dissipation. In other words, so that we wouldn't waste our lives away. That's what dissipation means, to waste something. Some of us have a terrible habit of wasting our time, wasting our lives away. I don't know how you do it. I know how I waste time. How do you waste time? The point of what Jesus is saying here is you ought to watch the news and see the signs and go, I don't know when Jesus is coming, but these things remind me that he is, and I better stop sitting on my duff and staring at the TV all day. I better stop staying on the Internet until midnight, fooling around, doing a whole lot of nothing. Some of us are terrible about wasting time, and I include myself in that. Jesus says, no, no dissipation. I'm coming. Others of us are busy But we're busy, not with kingdom things, but still in verse 34, with the worries of this life. And so, Jesus says, I'm warning you ahead of time as well. When you're slouched in front of the TV and you see the news ticker reporting that there's a tsunami in Japan, you ought to be startled awake. Or when you're rushing yourself around to this activity and that, and you hear about Libya on the radio, you ought to reevaluate your priorities. You ought to say to yourself, 
Here is another God-sent reminder that this world is fading away, that this life is short, that I will soon see Jesus face to face, and that I haven't got time for dissipation and slothfulness, nor have I got time to busily waste my weeks away like a hamster in its wheel, running and running and running, but accomplishing very little for the kingdom. So I just plead that some of us would take that away from this passage, that Luke 21 would be a gentle kick in the pants for us if we're wasting our lives on fluff instead of watching and praying, verse 36, instead of rising up in the morning and spending time in God's word, verse 38. Oh, that Luke 21 might combine itself with the pictures from Sendai and Fukushima and Port-au-Prince and Christchurch, New Zealand and Libya and Egypt and Ethiopia, that Luke 21 might combine with the things that we're seeing on the news that are prophesied here in order to awaken us from spiritual slumber. The signs of the times are so important, not so that we have something interesting to assert into our, insert into our end times charts. The signs of the times are important so that we might get up out of our easy chairs and put our charts in the closet and begin to watch and pray and work until Jesus comes. And with that in mind, let me remind you that there's one other sign of the times that Luke doesn't mention, but that Matthew quotes Jesus as saying on this occasion. All the signs of the times that Luke mentions are things that are beyond our control. In other words, you can't start or stop a famine or a war or an earthquake or a plague. But there's one sign of the times that Jesus mentioned and Matthew records that you can do something about. And it's this, Matthew 24, 14. Spoken at the same time as what we're reading here in Luke 22. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations or people groups. And then the end will come. That's a sign of the times. Jesus will come back when we have completed the task he left us with when he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1. Jesus went up into the clouds and told us to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And he will come back in the clouds when we've taken the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, to all the people groups. And therefore, the completion of that task is the ultimate biblical sign of the times. The completion of that task is the ultimate reason for us not to live our lives in dissipation or haste over the things of the world. And the completion of that task is the ultimate reason for us to keep on the alert, verse 36, at all times, praying. So let's get busy. Let's get busy with these tasks of being alert and praying and being godly and not wasting our lives and getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's get busy so that the nations might hear and believe before it's too late. Let's get busy so that that day, verse 34, will not come upon us like a trap so that we won't be caught napping when Jesus returns. And let's get busy, as Peter will tell us in one of his epistles, let's get busy living like we ought and hastening the day of Jesus coming so that he will return and so that he will return soon.